You are listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. Uh, it was about a little over 50 years ago, December 1968, which seems like a long time ago. But when you stop and think that the earliest recorded history is over 5,000 years ago, you know, go back to Egypt and Samaria, the best that... Uh, archaeologists and whoever the people are that study ancient peoples and all of that can tell. Like We have a recorded history that goes back about 5,500 years ago to think that it's only been a little over 50 years ago. In fact, it, literally, I was born in November 1968. In December 1968, the Apollo 8 mission sent three astronauts around the moon 10 times. And for the first time, human eyes were able to visually look and see what the other side of the moon looked like. The first time ever that anyone saw not just a sunrise or a moonrise, but an earth rise in the process. In fact, there's a beautiful picture that's kind of an iconic picture that's been since then. And here it comes. It's going to be there in a second. It looks better on this screen. That screen's a little jaundiced. It kind of needs, you know, a little belly Rubens gotten a little out of control over there. So look at this screen if you can. But an incredible thing. Can you imagine the vastness of the crew? The first ones, they were the first ones to go to the moon and back. They didn't land on the moon. That would be three missions later. But can you imagine? I don't really think we can, but let's just think a minute, if we could, just the vastness of how small they must have felt looking back at the earth from that perspective. That was only like a little over 50 years ago that we're able to, to think of that. Now, it's interesting. Some of you may remember this. I was a month old. I don't remember it. But the, they broadcast it Christmas Eve of 1968, and the astronauts read Genesis 1. Not the whole thing, but they read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was broadcast, not just in the U.S., but literally around the world. We're going to talk this morning about the God who created all that the universe and so many galaxies away that no one has physically laid eyes on, even to this day, about the vastness of our God. We're in a series that we're really beginning. I, I got a little, um, I don't know what the word is, the greedy might be the better word, because I really want to do Genesis, the kind of beginnings, but then I'm like, ha, oh, but Exodus is really good too. We need to do that too, so I'm lumping them together. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but we're going to talk about the beginnings of our world, beginning of people. We're going to talk about the beginnings of the mess, of what, how this world got all messed up. We're going to talk about the beginnings of God's work at saving, redeeming the world. That's what Exodus is about, the beginning of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and God really beginning to dial in on His salvation plan. So you really can't understand the rest of the Bible if you don't really understand Genesis and Exodus together. They're kind of, in my mind, really a pair. So it really sets us up for everything that happens. So read with me, if you would, in Genesis 1. The Bible says this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the heavens. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Wouldn't it be awesome, maybe scary, like if everything you said happen? That would be great. I wanted that superpower as a parent with my kids. I never got it. Maybe you got it, but you know, you just, you say it and it happens. 
then I'd be like, ooh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. You know, <laughs> I'd be a little more careful with what I said. But God said it, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. In fact, throughout this, if you're familiar with Genesis 1, at every step of the way, God is declaring it to be good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, as we walk through this, I want us to recognize just two or three simple things today. Just really, we're going to talk about God, what he created, and the so what for us. There's three really, the, the three times in the Bible that we see God's glory revealed the most. This is the first one, that God creates all of this world around us out of nothing. That is incredible glory, incredible power. The glory of God is on display here. The second time is when he sends his son Jesus to this earth. God becoming man and taking upon the sins of the world, dying on the cross and resurrected. That's the second moment of glory, so kind of creation. And if you will, Christ in the cross. And the third one is when Jesus comes back, and it's kind of the consummation. It's the crowning of the, our Lord Jesus when he comes back, and this world is put down, and God kind of makes a new heaven and a new earth, and it's a consummation of the age. There, there, there are many things in the Bible that describe the glory of God. Those are the three biggest things. And so the first thing I want us to talk about is the, the who behind the what. You know, one of the big questions that we think about that every person, either indirectly or a lot of times directly, is, who am I? Where did I come from? What is all of this that's here? Everybody at some level is processing that at some point in their life. And depending on how you answer those questions, depending on the conclusions of those, it can either provide you great confidence and stability in life, or it can really mess you up, and it can really lead you down some really funky, wonky roads. Those just really deep theological words for just saying it can mess you up tremendously if you don't answer these questions well. And so the who behind the what, the Bible says, in the beginning, God. And we're just going to pause there for this first, this first section that we're looking at this morning. Genesis 1 takes us back not just a 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. It goes back. We don't know exactly how long, and there's debate, and there will continue to be debate until our Lord returns, just how old the world is. But he goes back to the very beginning, and he takes one step before it and says, before all of that, there was God. Because in the beginning... God was already here. It's in the beginning, God. Not in, be in the beginning, world. It's in the beginning, God. When we read Genesis 1-1, the Bible is claiming that God is the source of everything around us, that it finds its creation, it finds its existence, finds its substance, finds its purpose, finds its direction and trajectory in life out of the God who is here. Now, my mind, as I start thinking about this, this gets really difficult to comprehend. Because for God to be the only one that was here before anything else was here, before matter and energy and time and space and all the things that our science world studies, and for there to be a God, one behind all of that, for all of eternity, it's kind of, it's kind of mind-boggling. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, 
Listen to what it says. It might be on your screen. It says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting for forever to everlasting, you are God. That God himself was here before anything else existed. And where this gets difficult for me to comprehend is that, okay, there's God. Like, I can, I can envision the concept of a vacuum, right? A vacuum is absent. All matter is absent. Supposedly, time exists in a vacuum, and energy can. I'm not a physics guy. That doesn't make sense to me. Like, to me, a vacuum is nothing, and so I don't... That, that gets into just... Whatever, I leave smarter people, mathematical minds to figure that out. But a vacuum is nothing. But we can't even conceive of God in a vacuum because in my mind, the only way you have a vacuum is because you got something outside of the vacuum, right? God existed on his own. There wasn't even a vacuum for him to exist. And then one day, and you can't even think of it this way, it's really technically not right because days weren't in existence yet. But God said, Now's the time to make this world. But he couldn't even say now because there wasn't a now to exist. It's just God. Like my brain starts hurting when I start thinking about it. And like, so what did God do? So do we do it now? Yeah, not now. Do we do it now? Yeah, not now. Do we do it now? Like for all of eternity, God was this existing on his own, which means he needs nothing in this world. He didn't make us because he needed us. He's not codependent. He's not like, oh, I need some people that need me. You know, he didn't. I need some people that can share my glory or see my glory. I need to show off. Like, God for forever was completely happy, completely content. Most of us are overworked, right? Got too much going on? How many of you could truly, and be honest, Spend more than a day or two without anything to do. Truly, most of us would struggle to have an afternoon where we sit there. Part of the reason we're so busy is because we want to be. We don't like sitting there. Some of you are like, I can't stand to watch a football game. I can't. How can you just sit there for three hours? Some of you are like, I can't even sit through a movie. I've seen you. We're all just like, we want to be up and doing stuff, right? And for all of eternity, God is just there. He's just there. He's not doing anything. He's not singing. He's not humming. He's completely content, self-content in and of himself. You and I are not like that. Our new generation growing up even more so. They don't, we don't know how to live without electronics and, you know, just like, oh, I got to check in, see what's going on. I got to be, you know, and God is self-existing, self-content, needs nothing in this world, self-sustaining completely. In fact, in James 1, verse 17, the old King James it, it used to say that in him there is no shadow of turning. And in fact, there's no hint of change. He's not developing, he's not growing, he's not improving because he's perfect already. He is absolutely eternal, completely content in where he is. My mind, I cannot just close my eyes and can try to conceive of eternity past, and it just, I begin to blow a gasket. How in the world did God even know when he was going to create this and how that all works? And we don't know. But the Bible tells us right off the bat, in the most simplest of forms, that God is beyond all of our full comprehension and all of this world around us in which we look at finds its source in its existence inside of Him. Now, 
at the end of the day, we take that only by faith because it really can't truly be proven in a scientific way. But think about it. God made something outside of himself. He lives, if I could say it that way, outside of the system and the world that he made. He's not inside it. Anybody from the 80s or maybe the 2010s, you remember the movie, the two movies, Tron? You remember that where the creator makes, you know, video game world and the creator enters into that world? Okay. God lives outside of his world. So the world itself can never come outside of itself to prove God. When we're trying to prove and disprove the existence of God, we're trying to prove it using things within inside the world, but God lives outside of that world. So I begin to say, I don't lose so much sleep if people are struggling to prove the existence of, of God. To be honest with you, people are struggling to prove the existence or non-existence of all kinds of species, like endangered species. There's, there's a bird that, that's um, the ivory-billed woodpecker that's been on the endangered species list for forever in the U.S. And there is a raging debate about whether or not there's a few of those individuals flying around the swamps, I think, in Louisiana. Like, we can't even decide if the particular bird is alive or not. How are we going to figure out if there is truly a God or not? Like God is beyond outside of space and time and, 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 and the evidences and the things we see. Now, I'm not saying we don't have evidence of the existence of God. I'm just talking about that God exists in a way that you and I cannot engage and understand, which, by the way, means you really don't come to know God and figure God out. God has to come to you and reveal himself to you. He's not, he lives outside of this world, and he made it in an incredible way. So don't get too unnerved when your friends will say, like students in, in school or whatever, like, yeah, see, you just are believing in silly superstitious. You can't prove the existence of God. You just believe in fairy tales and don't let them back you up too hard on that. So, so hang with me. Think about it. What you need to do instead, okay, well, what do you believe about how the world came to be and where it is? Oh, well, I, I believe in, you know, evolution and that ultimately there was a, you know, life comes from and all that. Well, where did that life come from, you know, and out of the sea and all of that? Okay, well, where did that come from? Well, there was this big bang. Okay, where all did that stuff come from? Like, go all the way back. This gets really simple really quickly. There's only maybe three or four choices possible out there. One, there's either a God who is here that created everything, or matter and energy have always been here. They're eter it's eternal. They're eternal. Or nothing was here, and matter and energy created itself, self-producing. Like either way, you're having to come back to some pretty big things that are truly not provable along the way. And if you were talking about matter and energy always being able to be here, that takes a step of faith. Like all of this stuff was out here just kind of floating around. Like who's responsible for that? I mean, you're knocking on the door of Godness already, that it's already eternal. It's already been here, like for forever in the past. And then to think, and there's some debate about how the Big Bang happened, that there was nothing, and all of a sudden just this spark created everything. I'm like, what? Like, how does, that takes a ridiculous amount of faith to believe that. So don't let people kind of bully you or feel sheepish around it. Everybody ultimately ends up that it takes faith to come to these kinds of terms, all right? So the Bible describes God as an unbelievable source of all this. So what's the 
implication for our life. This is so more, much more important than a, a spiritual debate or a science debate or any of that. If this is true, and I accept it by faith, then what it means is, is that God is the center of the universe and not us. If this is true, it means there is a God in the world. Hang with me, because I can't conceive of God. God's everywhere. You, you were with me, right? There is a God in existence to whom we owe our life, our purpose, all the blessing, all the things that we enjoy that you can't look at a rose or a flower without saying, wow, God, you're amazing. And look that you made that that I get to enjoy. Wow, God, thank you for the water that I get. I mean, God is the center of everything, and you and I are not. It stops us in our tracks, and it reorients everything in this world around us. We live in a world where it's a me generation, right? It's all about me. I'll tell you a secret. People have always, it's always been about me. It's not new. It's been that way for thousands of years, and it will continue. It's all, we think it's all about us, but God's like, yeah, no, I'm at the center of this, and the whole world finds its source in me. So that means you and I should get to know that God. That means that you and I should go to Him, that if He invented this world, then He's the ultimate life tech support, right? When we're trying to figure out and things aren't working, we go to the designer, we go to the one who made us, to Him. It means also that you and I, if we are a creation of Him, that we find our ultimate purpose in Him. We find our ultimate purpose in life in God, just as an in, engineers will, you know, develop and design. So let's just take something relatively simple, a car, right? An engine and a drivetrain and whether it's electric and EV or whether it's a combustible, you know, engine, gasoline engine, whatever. Engineers design and they put all of that thing together. They know it's how it's supposed to work. Consequently, they know when it's not working right and they know how to fix it, and they know how to make it right. Well, God engineered and designed this world, and each part and piece in this world that God made has a purpose. And one of the struggles we have in life that people kind of try to go everywhere to find themselves, you really can't truly find yourself apart from God. Because God's the one that designed you. God's the one that made you. God's the one that created this world in which we live. I'm not talking about the mess. There, there is a, well, if God made this world, why is it so messed up? We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But it means that our whole life as people, before we even look at anything past Genesis 1, should 100% be fully oriented to God, that we look to Him for everything in our life. So there's a who behind the what. And what's amazing when we look at verse 2, is that this God that made this world, we get a picture of God, that there was a, He formed the world initially, and then He made light. My understanding is He did all that in the same day. The Bible doesn't put all this together. In fact, when you read these verses, each verse, each kind of section starts with the word and. There's a sequential order to this. It's like and this, and, and that, and that, and that, and that. 
And even in verse 2, I don't know why the translators didn't do it, but there's actually an and in Hebrew. It should say, and the earth was without form and void. So it's like God started, He made kind of the rough stuff, and then He began speaking all these other things into life. But the piece that I want you to notice is, is that when God made this world, there was a time and a picture that were given of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. That word hovering is in, 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 in Hebrew is the idea of, a, of a, a mother bird flitting and hovering and watching after her chicks over her eggs. You see, God made this world, and He paid attention to the details, and He cares about it, intimately watching and hovering every mood. In fact, a, a, a hen or a a, a bird that sits on its eggs can tell when those birds, there's communication that goes back and forth as that egg develops into a chick. They're hearing before that's ever hatched the mom, and they're hearing those noises, but then they're talking and they're going back and forth. God was caring for and hovering over this creation. And God is a God that He did that then, and He still does that today in your life and my life. So as we think about that picture, you know, looking at the vastness of the world and the smallness of us, don't get the picture that God is so big that He can't pay attention because He is so amazing that He made this world, but then He pays attention and hovers over your life and hovers over your world like a, a mama bird, paying attention, caring, protecting, and guiding, and nurturing He's a God who's intimately involved in His world. So that's the who behind the what. What about the how behind the what? And there's the raging debates, and we're not going to solve this today. I'm going to unpack what Genesis says, and I'll share with you some things that why I think it's reasonable to believe this. And there's so much in science that's good and helpful, but some science is not always really that scientific. I'll get to that in just a minute. It's Science isn't as always scientific as it's made out to be. But when the Bible says that this world came to be, it says that God created. That word created is significant. You see, you and I really don't create. We manipulate. We take something and make other somethings out of it. But when the Bible says God created, it means that He made something out of nothing else. The most recent element that's been discovered, I kind of maybe say created, and this, it'll say discovered, it's called Tennessee. You can Google it, look it up. It was announced in like 2010, I think, in Russia. It is a synthetic element. Like, you know, you go to the periodic table, those, remember, go back to chemistry days, if you had chemistry, gold and, you know, zinc and those kind of like basic elements. Well, this one is Tennessee, named after the state of Tennessee. I don't know why, but that's what they named it. And because it's a synthetic element, the longest that they've been able to keep it in existence, it's, it's human-made, is for 10 to uh, maybe 100 or 2 milliseconds. Like, you can't just go out and find it in the ground, all right? And it comes out of like a nuclear explosion, chain reaction, or whatever, and I'm not sure. Maybe something cool comes out of it later on. Maybe it's like it will produce tremendous power. I don't know why you'd spend millions of dollars to create something that doesn't last very long in the end. Anyway, I don't know. But even then, 
they're taking stuff, manipulating it to make other stuff. That's all that we do. God was the only one in existence, and he made all of this out of nothing. Which, by the way, if you can accept those first four words, five words, whatever that is, that first verse, the rest of the Bible is a piece of cake to believe. Piece of cake. Like the miracles, no big deal. If you really can accept, come to the place that you say, you know what, God made this world out of nothing, then there's nothing stopping God from doing anything that he wants to in this world. In fact, what seems like a miracle to us is nothing to God. Absolutely nothing whatsoever. In fact, the creation of the world was by far the biggest miracle. Anything that Jesus did paled in comparison except taking his sins, our sins upon the cross and rising from the dead. That's a whole other level of miracle, not just a physical miracle, but there's a spiritual uh, miracle in there as well. But God created, and we don't. Now, there's... There's some pieces in here that are significant because along the way, we didn't read all of the, cha- all of the chapter, but you know, there's this passing of day. I tend to think this is talking literal days, like evening and morning is the first day, you know, evening and morning the second day. There is a passing of time. There is a clear day, and, and even Christians will debate you know, how long this is and all of it. And Folks, I, I look at the Bible, and I tend to be more and more simple-minded. If I'm going to change what seems obvious here, then what stops me from changing what seems obvious when I get to the book, the parts of the Bible that talk about Jesus dying on the cross and paying for our sins? Like, why maybe I start changing and thinking some strange things are going on there? So if I take it literal one place, I'm going to take that the same way other places. And so... What the Bible describes is that God is the source of all of it, and He spoke at each step of the way certain things into existence until this world began. Yet He was the big bang that happened. He spoke, and there was light, energy in this world and moving forward. And so He made this world, and He made it good, the Bible says. Each step of the way, God saw that it was good. Not, this is not when you step back and mow your lawn and like, good job. This is not when you make dinner or some special type of meal and you're worried about it and it comes out like, oh, this is good. No, this means perfect. This means no flaw, no weakness, morally, perfectly, in a way that you and I have never made anything in this world good. And then at the end of it all, and I believe it's verse 31, the Bible says that God stepped back as it were, And he saw that what he had made was very good. Nothing bad in the world, no evil in the world, nothing that didn't work properly, no extra parts, nothing left over. It's not like God took things apart, put an engine back together. It's like, uh uh-oh, I've missed, I got four extra bolts here. I have no idea where these go. You and I take things apart and put them back together. Like, I don't know where that goes. I have forgotten. God made this world and he made it perfectly good made it good. We'll talk in a couple of weeks about where the mess comes from and kind of who messed this world up. And it's not God. God made it good. Now, you really can't explain the existence of this world, whether or not a person is atheist, whether or not a person is a fully, you know, focused like God created this world out of nothing. 
you, you have a really difficult time explaining this world, if not an impossible time, without explaining the existence of this world due to something supernatural. It just, it just doesn't work. So let's think about the mathematical world. Mathematicians, I'm not good at math, so I'm not going to try to explain this. I'll get to the biology. I know biology a little bit better. The math, math, mathematicians tell us, if you take all of the different things that could have happened in this world, like the distance of the sun to the earth and the moon that we rely upon and all of that and all of the different elements and the things the way this world's put together, and you start trying to put probability numbers to each of those, it gets so small that this world could actually exist that it is zero. In other words, it is a math, mathematicians say it is a mathematical impossibility that this world exists the way it does today. Look at the physics world. The physics world, the law of entropy, right off the bat tells us that things don't increase in order and organization, they decrease in order and organization. They don't get better, they get worse. Unleash a kindergarten class in your house unsupervised for an afternoon, does your house somehow become more orderly, more clean, more organized, or does it go into disorder, disorganized? Everything in life goes from order to disorder, not from disorder to order. That's the law of entropy, and it is a law. It is a like, undeniable, there are very few scientific things out there that are so immutable that they've become laws, and this is one of them. So the whole premise of the world existing apart from a supernatural God is an impossibility to the physics world. I'm not a physicist, and I can't begin. If you push too deep in that, I cannot explain you all the math and all the things behind it, but that makes sense to me that this world does not go into a higher level of order. It always goes to a lower level of order. Then we get to the biological world. And it really doesn't work very well there either. And what the Bible says is that when God made this world and He made, made things, like in verse 11 through 13, that He made things that bear forth fruit after their kind. In verse 11, the Bible says this, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its, see that word, kind. We today might say species. And then, and it was so, in verse 12, And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And that, that same language goes all the way through, and it comes to the creeping things, and it comes to the mammals, and the birds, and the fish, and the reptiles, and all of that, after their kind. Now, you know, at the end of the day, I really don't care how God made this world and what the right answer is. I just want to know as best as what God has revealed what that is. And what the Bible says is that God made these plants and living creatures. He made all the living organisms designed to reproduce their, their species, their kind. That's what it says in plain you know, words. And so immediately then there's in our world today, there's a, a, a debate. Well, wait a minute. 
well, what about evolution? And what about the higher forming of life and that life ultimately began in, a, in, in, in the ocean and became, began in a thermal vent, you know, where kind of heat and all these elements produced life somehow. And then it kind of went from single cell to multiple cell organisms and, and kind of from a sea cucumber. Have you ever seen a sea cucumber? They're just kind of weird. I really don't know what they exist, what they do. They just float around the ocean. They're a little living organism. They just kind of hang out and to where eventually something crawls out on land and, you know, we get into fish and amphibians and then, you know, into reptiles and reptiles become birds and birds eventually one day become mammals and then mammals ultimately one day to us. Kind of this hierarchy. Well, I want us as followers of Jesus, if you believe Genesis 1, that God created this world, it's okay to believe in parts of evolution, but the full part of it probably is a bit of a struggle. Like, so evolution taken as a whole is the ordering and the hierarchy and explaining naturalistically without a supernatural God who spoke things into existence of how we kind of life, once life began, how it then, you know, fleshed out with all of these other creatures. And for me, I, I, I can't, I don't accept the vertical evolution. What I call, it's, today it's popularly known as macroevolution. I kind of call it vertical, like, you know, kind of going from fish to lizards and lizards to birds and birds to mammals and kind of all of that just like vertically, right, going up the chain. But I have no trouble with the, what's seen as microevolution. And most often when evolutionists kind of look at Christians like, well, you just are so ignorant and dumb and like you just like, what is wrong with you? Of course it's true. What they usually use to prove evolution true is horizontal evolution. In other words, change within a species. Because there ain't evidence going vertically. There is isn't that evidence. So the classic one you goes back to, look at the, the is a, it's called a peppered moth. The classic study was in the 1800s. This is the same species of moth, and one's kind of a dark with a little bit of white specks, and the other one's light with some dark specks, hence it's called peppered moth, right? It looks at the top, it's peppered. And these were found in England back in the 1800s, and they were actually being studied way back when, okay? So this is pre-Charles Darwin. And, and the tree, they found these, these like live in the, you know, in the forest, in the trees, and they, you know, land on the trunks of the trees is kind of where they hang out. And way back as early as 1811, they found a few of these black ones, but lots of the white ones. And then later on when they studied, it was reverse. There were more black ones than white ones. And so evolution said, ha, huh, we've got an example of change happening within species. Look at these adaptations going on. And then somebody later on, like as late as the 50s, studied it and tried to explain why. And I think they kind of had an inkling before that. But in the 50s, they studied it and said, well, obviously, we know why this change happened. This is adaptation because in the Industrial Revolution in England, all the factories and plants began belching out smoke and soot and ash and everything that's bad for you, right? Before catalytic converters were invented and whatever you do to scrub chimneys and make it clean. Consequently, the trees that used to be more white on the bark became darker. And if you're a little bird looking for a meal, it's easier to find a light 
moth on a dark background than it is to find a dark moth on a dark background. Flip to the next slide. See the picture? There's actually two moths there. If you're a bird flying around looking for something to eat, you're probably going to see the black moth first, right? So when the trees were light, the birds ate the black moths, hence there weren't very many of them. Survival rate wasn't very good. But when the trees all got sooted because of ash, then it was reverse. And evolutionists would say, well, look, this proves evolution. And I look at it, I'm like, yeah, not really. You still have a moth. You have the same species of moth. You haven't done anything, you haven't done anything different than what dog breeders do when they make a chihuahua and a golden retriever and a Great Dane. Like, that's no more evolutionary than that. You're just manipulating the gene pool within one species to give one variety over another. That's not evolution. That's not manipulation going up and through. That, that's a million miles from that. I have no trouble believing that God put in within specific species a, a broad gene pool that, that allows it to, to adapt to the, the world around it. Recently in Africa, this may be too scientific nerdy for you. Some of you like it. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, Sean, I hate biology. So just hang with me. We live in a world, I'm trying to help you to see the Bible's not as irrelevant to the world as it really makes out. But this is, if you're like science, this is kind of fascinating. Elephants like to eat trees, right? Tall, long trucks, they like leaves. And they love acacia trees. In Africa, there's an area where the acacia trees had a particular ant that lived in the tree that didn't kill the tree, but it would, it would live in the leaves, and the elephants couldn't eat the, the leaves because it would sting them on the nose. Well, I don't want to eat anything either that's going to sting me on the nose every time I go in there. So the elephants learn to leave the trees alone. Consequently, the trees live and they stay good. Well, in comes another ant that doesn't live in trees, but it kills all of those ants. And then when those ants are gone, the elephants eat all of the leaves off the acacia trees. Now, because the leaves are off the acacia trees, the lions that used to hide kind of in the woods, because lions are ambush predators, they don't rely on speed like a cheetah. They wait and jump on you. They don't get to hide as much, so they no longer can eat the zebras. And it all goes back to an ant, and now they find lions are eating more buffaloes. Well, I look at that and say, that's not real evolution. That's just God building in a system of an adaptation that's natural and it's good and healthy. I have no trouble believing that all day long. I think it is beautiful. But to say that we are a million miles to say, you know, single cells get multiple complex and all these things go up and through. So be careful. It's okay to believe in much of the science. It's okay to believe in much of natural selection. But... Saying that doesn't mean you accept the whole thing. Like, I'll give you even an example. The genus species of a wolf is Canis lupus. The genus species of a coyote is Canis latrans. The genus species of a, a domestic dog is, depending on where you land, Canis lupus americanus or Canis americanus. And they all can interbreed and produce viable offspring. In other words, they're all really close. I have no trouble going back and saying, you know what? There was probably one super dog on the ark. And over 5,000 years, they just wolves live more in the woods and more out west, and coyotes are a little bit smaller. They're like 40 pounds soaking wet, you know, and we've domesticated dogs. I got no problem with that. But that's a million miles from saying a lizard became a bird, jumped out of a tree one day, and, you know, decided to flap its wings. 
There, the science isn't there. If you really look at the, what the evolutionists talk about, it's just not there. So God made this world, and he's spoken into existence. And it's actually reasonable to look at the world, and we, I, I love science and fascinated with it, but it has some shortcomings. And really, at the end of the day, science is having to rely on the supernatural more than they admit, and yet they don't want to admit a God. And to me, it's easier for me to say, you know what? I think it makes a whole lot more logical, rational sense to say, I think what the Bible's telling me is true. That there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, loving, self-existent, eternal, infinite, caring, compassionate being that made this world in which we live. And it's easier for me to believe that than to try to believe some of the, the things that they're trying to produce that they really are not producing and saying exist. So, Sean, what in the world? We're talking about moths and zebras and dogs and what in the world? What's the so what for you? If this is true, and I submit to you that it is, you have to take it on faith but so does much of the science. You keep pushing all the science far enough back and you drive them to a point of faith as well because they can't prove it either. Then what it means is, is that this is true, then God in heaven is a God we should worship. That he deserves our absolute, undying, 100% devotion to the point we fall on our face before a God in heaven and worship Him, because He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, self-existent. And if there is, this is true, then we should want to know that God. It's more important than who's going to win the football games today, or who's going to win the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks. It's more important than what we're going to make for dinner, and more important than what you're going to work on in your house later on today. That there is a God who made this. And he's got a purpose and a function in my life. And it means that we should know him and get to know him. And we should listen to what he has told us. And we should follow and obey him just as an engineer designs a piece of part that fits into a car. That we should follow him. Because that's what we were made for. It changes everything in our life today. And it makes it completely different. And by the way, it's reasonable you can believe these things without losing your mind. It's that can I indulge can I can you indulge me one more second? One more second. The physical world, mathematical world, biological world, we didn't even touch the sociological world. We don't live according to the principles of science and evolution, even in our social policies today. The federal government is is paying people to shoot um, bar, uh, barred owls in the western part of the U.S., 500,000 of them over the next 30 years, paying people to shoot them with shotguns. Oh, my goodness. And some owl people are like, what in the world? Well, they're doing it because there's an endangered species called a spotted owl that lives in old-growth forests. And the barred owls are coming in, and they are outperforming, outnesting, pushing out the spotted owls. 
well, if evolution were really true, shouldn't we not try to slow down the evolutionary process? Shouldn't we just say, well, poor spotted owls, you just didn't make the cut. Sorry. Nice knowing you. We shouldn't care. Like, our policies don't follow it. If, if it really is a survival of the fittest and we're the biggest goal of all of us as a species is to pass on our genetics to the next generation, we break down the entire family structure. A guy should go around and sleep with as many women as he possibly can be so he can produce as many kids as he can because that's his goal in life is to produce that. It breaks the whole family structure down. It, it breaks everything down in our world. But really, at the end of the day, we're made in the image of God, all of us, even people who don't believe in God. And the reason our culture cares about endangered species, they don't know it, is because God put inside their heart a desire to take care of this world. And they care about whether species make it or not. So I'm not saying it's right or wrong, money should be spent on that, I'm not getting into public policy. I'm just saying we haven't even begun to discuss past the biology and the science of things. We can't, we aren't, we're a million miles from the sociology side of this that we don't even live accordingly to it. The Bible is true, folks, when you look at it beginning to end. So my challenge to you is, are you going to believe it? And are you going to orient your life around the God of heaven today? Are you going to be sheepish when people start acting like you're an idiot or you're dumb or you don't have a brain, you know, and somehow you hate science because you believe the Bible? Stand up and ask questions. Don't be a jerk, but don't get pushed back so quickly on some things. And put your life into the hands of God it's already there, whether you admit it or not. That's the thing. This book just told us that we're under the authority and control of God, and there's not one thing any of us can do about it to change that. Not one. Which, when you're a follower of Jesus, is comforting. When you're not, it's scary. So the rest of this book is going to unfold in the significant things, the foundation of our life. And what are you building your life on today? So I challenge you, encourage you to worship the God of heaven that made you. Your life has worth and value. <laughs> if evolution were true, we would be putting people who time out in age and ability and disability and be like, you know what, we're just, evolution's real. We're just letting you go because you're not adding value anymore into the world. We care about people because this word is true. So let's celebrate and honor God in that, and let's stand in our, our heart toward Him. So won't you pray with me as our worship team comes up? Thank you for listening. Join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at River of Life Church, or find us online on Facebook, YouTube, or at riveralbany.com.